and welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Ona Hathaway, professor of international law at Yale Law School. Ona, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. You were on last year to talk about overclassification. I very much encourage listeners to go back and, and check that out if they haven't. This time around, we're going to be talking about the extent to which America's excessive use of force abroad has eroded the international order. Ona wrote a chapter in a forthcoming anthology edited by Brianna Rosen, who's also been on the show, entitled How the Erosion of U.S. War Powers Constraints Has Undermined International Law Constraints on the Use of Force. So just to start us out, give us a sense of the problem you're tackling. Uh, You mentioned that the U.S. is reportedly engaged in active military hostilities in around 20 countries. Even though we're no longer occupying Afghanistan, there seems to be a a kind of a new normal in the post 9-11 era for unilateral war. Yeah. I mean, what I'm trying to do in this paper is, you know, step back um, from the moment we're in and sort of put this into kind of bigger picture perspective. You know, here we are uh, more than two decades after 9-11, and we are still extensively at war around the world. And what I tried to do here is think, think about why, why is that the case and, and what role, since I'm a lawyer, an international lawyer, what role do lawyers have to play in this? I mean, obviously, there's lots of policy decisions that are involved, but what kinds of legal choices have, have been made along the way that, that enables that? And at the same time, I'm also trying to draw a connection here between the erosion of congressional war powers and the international law consequences of that. Um, And so taking these two problems that are kind of thought of as like independent, separate problems and kind of talk about how they interrelate with one another. And in fact, one might be partially, you know, the the erosion of congressional authority might be part of what's driving this change in uh, international law of self-defense. Right. So let's let's take those two um, legal developments uh, one at a time. Um, with respect to eroding domestic constraints, I suppose we can start with Congress. You say that the constitutional order has basically been turned on its head. Now Congress has to muster supermajorities to stop ongoing U.S. involvement in a war instead of how it should be, which is they approve and authorize the war that the president carries out. What's the story on how Congress has become impotent on interventions? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a long story. Um... But, you know, it's worth starting in case your listeners um, haven't looked at the Constitution recently um, with sort of noting the fact that that it is Congress that has the power to declare war. Um, And in fact, Congress has lots of powers relating to war in the Constitution, the power to raise and support armies, um, to make rules for uh, for military conflict. So there's a whole host of responsibilities that Congress has over war, the most important of them being the Declare War Clause. And the president, of course, is the commander in chief. Um, so that's an extraordinarily important role as well. And, and you know, the idea is that the president is going to be the one who's going to wage the wars. And Congress really shouldn't tell him, take this hill, not that hill. But it can say, yes, this conflict, no, not this conflict. Um, and w- over time, that, that constitutional understanding has eroded. Um, and we're at a point now where 
um, a president can make a decision to use military force pretty much anywhere in the world. And the United States has the capacity to project force anywhere in the world, um, thanks to our extensive ability to project force in the air. We've got, you know, aircraft carriers around the world. We've got, you know, we've got the ability to project force pretty much anywhere in the world right now. So a president can make a decision to wage war pretty much anywhere in the world right now. And the way that things have played out, pretty much Congress is on the sidelines. Um, and when the president makes a decision to use force, Congress, though it's supposed to be the one that has the power to declare war, and they're so in theory that what the president should do is that when it, whenever he wants to initiate a new conflict, he should have to go to Congress to do so. But what we have seen is that presidents can make these unilateral decisions. And then Congress is kind of stuck in a bind because Congress has kind of a couple options. One is maybe to go to the courts. Now, they've tried that in the past um, and said, wait a minute, we have this constitutional role to declare war. President's gone to war without us. We should be the ones who are making that decision. This is illegal. Courts declared unconstitutional. And the courts have basically said, we don't want any part of this. <laughs> so the courts have in a series of decisions, whenever this has been challenged, they go to what we call just disability doctrine. So they basically say either the members of Congress who are challenging it, don't have standing to challenge it, or it's a political question. So it's not the sort of thing that the courts can resolve. So that means the courts won't stop it. So then the only thing that Congress really has um, at its disposal is the power of the purse. And that's very politically fraught because for Congress to kind of pull the rug out from under our troops while they're fighting a war and just say, like, we're not going to pay for your um, armaments, you know, we're not going to pay to support this is just a political nightmare for any member of Congress. And so the only thing that Congress really can do is um, vote to end the war, but that is subject to a veto by the president. So what that means is then in order to overcome a veto by the president, you have to get a two thirds majority in both houses. And that's impossible. Um, and we've seen this. We've seen efforts. The most recent effort uh, that Congress made along these lines was to um, prevent uh, U.S. involvement in the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen. So Saudi has been extensively bombing Yemen, uh, which is its neighbor, um, has been um, accused of, and those allegations are quite credible, you know, massive international humanitarian law violations, you know, bombing buses, bombing weddings, bombing, you know, uh, Médecins Sans Frontières facilities. I mean, they they have really been extraordinarily abusive. And members of Congress were upset about this and managed to pass um, through Congress um, a bill to withdraw U.S. support, but that was vetoed by President Trump and they couldn't get the master of the two-thirds majority uh, that was necessary to overcome that veto. So, it's flipped the constitutional order on its head. This just means that Congress, if it's going to stop something, needs a two-thirds majority in both houses, which, as we can see, it's hard to muster even a majority or in either house um, to stop a war. And meanwhile, presidents basically end up effectively having a blank check to, to wage war anywhere in the world. And that's despite the fact we have war powers resolution. We have all these other things that are supposed to constrain the president's unilateral authority, but they've just proven ineffective in in reality. Um, and so we're in this bad situation, I think. So that covers the legislature. But can you say a little more about why courts have been so deferential here? You know, it's actually been a puzzle to me, I'll be honest. Um, 
And I find the reasoning pretty unpersuasive. Um, I mean, the, the reason, the short reason is, I think whenever anything has to do with national security or with, with um, military matters, courts just are reflexively um, deferential. But I think, and this is true in foreign affairs generally, is in general, there is significant deference to the presidents in, in the area of, of foreign affairs. I think the problem with that is that the claim, for instance, that this is a political question, I think what that's not recognizing is that effectively what that's saying is the president wins. You know, the president can do whatever he wants. Like that is, it, it's not a non-decision. It is a decision. It's a decision basically to let the president to proceed with with whatever he is, he has decided he wants to to do, and I think I, you know, I think part of it is once one court does it, obviously there's precedent set up, and that becomes a that becomes then more of a, um, you know, you look to this prior precedent, and in other cases, other courts have been reluctant to to proceed in these cases, but you know, I think what's puzzling about it is, for instance. The D.C. Circuit has um, interpreted the 2001 authorization for use of military force several times. It's done it in the context of challenges to habeas corpus um, for detentions at Guantanamo Bay. And they felt perfectly comfortable interpreting the 2001 authorization for use of military force for the purposes of saying no, that they can continue to be detained um, at Guantanamo. And yet somehow, all of a sudden, when it comes to the question as to whether the 2001 authorization for use of military force actually authorizes military operations in Syria in 2015 or now 2022, when the 2001 authorization says nothing about Syria, has nothing to do with anything that's, you know, connected to Syria, all of a sudden, somehow they can't interpret the 2001 authorization for use of military force. Um, and so I, I think there's a kind of absurdity to it, frankly. And I think the courts are just not showing the courage that they ought to um, in weighing in on these issues. Can you talk a bit about the evolution of the self-defense doctrine in Article 2 authority for the president? Uh, that's become, they, they just say basically anything is self-defense, right? Yeah. I mean, it's become kind of the president's get out of jail free card, right? It's sort of, it, it What's so great about relying on self-defense is that it serves two purposes. On the one hand, it serves a constitutional purpose, which is there is consensus that a true need to engage in self-defense is unilaterally within the president's authority. That's my own view is like if there's an attack on the nation, absolutely, the president needs to be able to respond and protect us. There's no doubt about that. Um, And I think there's lots of good constitutional defense of that. There's lots of historical defense of that view. Absolutely, that's that's the case. But it's been stretched to the point where they're using it for um, to justify use of military force, you know, halfway around the world against groups that it's not entirely clear actually intend to, to attack the United States. And sort of claiming that that somehow falls within Article Two of the Constitution, so Article Two, you know, defines the president's powers, its commander in chief power, and that idea that the president has the authority to defend the nation falls within this interpretation of the power as a commander in chief. Um, it also serves a purpose, in theory, of um, of solving the international law problem. So when you're using military force abroad, in theory, you're supposed to 
deal with both domestic law obligations, that is, you know, is this constitutional? Does this fit within our own domestic law framework? And then separately, this question of um, international law, is this lawful under international law? And um, the the neat thing about self-defense is it's kind of like a, it's like a, it's a, a skeleton key. It works for both, um, right? So it works for both the domestic law and then it's used to solve the international law problem because under international law, under Article 51 of the United Nations Charter, states are permitted to use self-defense um, to protect themselves against an armed attack abroad. Um, and so it's being used to serve these kind of dual legal purposes. Is there a special place in that story for um, the Bush doctrine of preemptive self-defense? Absolutely. So I think, you know, we saw an extreme version of this uh, it developed um, in the lead up to the war in Iraq. Um, so there was what's sometimes referred to as a Bush doctrine, this idea of preemptive self-defense. So, you know, classically, the idea of self-defense under Article 51, and the Article 51 actually says that where when a state is subject to armed attack, so that those are that's the actual language. Um, and so this idea that so the classically, you would say, okay, Article 51 only justifies an act of self-defense if you've been subject to an armed attack. That is, you've actually been attacked. <laughs> and then um, over the years, people said, well, you know, obviously, if the tanks are kind of on the border and you know they're coming in and it's like it's absolutely imminent and, you know, there's no other way to stop them from coming in other than to attack them before they come over the line, well, then self-defense obviously justifies that. So we don't really have to wait for the armed attack to happen. If we know an armed attack is absolutely imminent, there's no moment for deliberation, we should be able to respond. The What the Bush administration did is kind of take that to an extreme and say, well, if we think you know, that there is a reasonable chance that there is a future attack that might be coming down the pike, then we can act in self-defense to try and defuse that future um, threat. And that was used in part um, in a series of memos uh, by the Office of Legal Counsel, um, written in significant part by John, I think now disgraced, John Yu, who also wrote the torture memos. Um, he basically said, you don't even have to go to Congress to invade Iraq because you can, you can do a big old ground war in Iraq because we are doing it to defend the nation against um what they believed or claimed to believe at the time was weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. So you don't even need Congress's authority to invade Iraq. Now, the Bush administration luckily was smart enough to not take that advice and actually went to Congress and sought authorization to use military force in Iraq. So we have the 2002 authorization for use of military force, which permits uh, permitted the use of military force in Iraq. But the theory was you didn't even need that. Um, you didn't even need that for domestic law purposes under the Constitution because it's self-defense. And he didn't even mention international law. But the idea is that that also gives you a right under international law to defend yourself, even though Article 51 specifically says you have to be subject to armed attack before you have a right of self-defense. So it's this creeping expansion of this idea of self-defense to basically allow you to do pretty much anything you want to do. Well, what about the unwilling or unable doctrine? Yeah, so the unwilling or unable doctrine is um, it is another one of these doctrines that has arisen 
um, again, to try and expand this concept of self-defense. The basic idea of the unwilling or unable doctrine is if there is a non-state actor group that is operating within the state of a territory where that state is either unable or unwilling to address that threat, then you have the right to act in self-defense to um, defuse the threat by that non-state actor group. And so this is a move from self-defense against the state to self-defense against a non-state actor group. Um, so that's been a, a, a real signature move of the post-9-11 era because, of course, Al-Qaeda is a non-state actor group that that um, used military force against the United States. And a lot of the counterterrorism doctrine expansion of U.S. Um, international law theories has been generated in the um, effort to come up with doctrines that allow us to use military force against non-state actor groups. And so that the, the idea is that you're not, that the theory is that you're not using force against the state itself, you're using force against the non-state actor group located within the state. And you can do that if they're not willing to do something about it. So in Afghanistan, an example, that would be Al-Qaeda is located within Afghanistan. They have, um, they have camps, the training camps there. Um, and uh, at the time uh, the U.S. went into Afghanistan, the Taliban was a the government. They were unwilling, um, perhaps unable, but certainly unwilling to do anything about uh, those, those camps. And so the U.S. has a legal basis to, to use military force against them. And that's used right now. We're using military force in um, a lot of places around the world. Um, one of them is in northern Syria. Um, there are these uh, ISIS. Uh, ISIS is still, you know, intermittently active in the northern uh, part of Syria. And the justification is that the Assad government is either unable or unwilling. In that case, probably more unable than unwilling to do anything about it. Um, and yeah, and so that has been a theory that has given the U.S. a basis for a lot of the counterterrorism operations that we engage in around the world and that we have engaged in uh, since the 9-11 attacks. Sometimes the executive branch will just say that they're not constrained by these laws of war because the war we're fighting over here is not actually a war. I remember uh, the Obama administration's uh, intervention in Libya came down with, uh, you know, they, they called it something else, kinetic action, which is just, uh, I mean, all of these excuses actually, if you want my opinion, seem really laughable on their face, but this one is particularly absurd, I think. Yeah, this one was, was um, I agree, you know, especially troubling. So the claim in Libya was and um, your listeners may remember, Gaddafi was was threatening to um, uh, basically rain down hell and high hellfire on on um, groups within Benghazi, and um, and you know there was a real fear of of civilian slaughter. Um, and what uh, there was actually a Security Council resolution. So the Security Council authorized the humanitarian intervention in that case. So we didn't have to rely on self-defense there. The Security Council authorized the use of, of military force uh, for purely humanitarian purposes um, to address this humanitarian threat, not, not to engage in regime change, which ultimately did happen. And there's a lot of controversy within the Security Council as to whether NATO... Um, which was the one that ended up leading the coalition overstepped the bounds of the resolution. But 
In any case, it was authorized as a matter of international law, but under domestic law, the challenge was, well, wait a minute. You know, we, again, we have these two separate legal constructs, right? We have to not only meet international law obligations, we have to meet domestic law obligations as well. And so Obama wanted to do this. He wanted to join the coalition. In fact, the Obama administration had really pushed the Security Council to authorize this use of military force and was the one that led the, the charge to have the Security Council resolution. And then the worry was, OK, well, how are we going to get domestic authority to do this? can't really say it's self-defense, right? So we can't use that Article 2 argument that we're so used to using um, because really Gaddafi does not actually pose a threat to the United States. You know, I mean, that, that, that would have to be pretty fanciful to kind of come up with an argument that somehow that's self-defense. And so what they ended up deciding was, well, there was an opinion um, issued by the um, Office of Legal Counsel initially that says basically this is in our national interest and the president thinks in our, it's in our national interest so we can use military force. But then, and so that was the justification for the initial use of military force, that the nature, scale, scope, and duration is the magic words. Nature, scope, and duration was not sufficient to make it war in the constitutional sense. Um, and uh, and that the president, you know, based on his judgment of what the national interest was, could act. And they 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 actually referenced Security Council resolution in our interest in supporting the international community. But that was not meant to answer the question of what happens when you hit the sixty day mark, which the we haven't talked extensively about this. But War Powers Resolution basically says, okay, yes, president can use military force, but at sixty days, if for if forces are still involved in hostilities then the president either has to withdraw the troops or get an authorization from Congress to continue to remain involved in hostilities past 60 days. And so they were getting up close to that 60-day mark, and they felt that they could not get authorization. I think what happened is they politically thought it was not going to get through Congress. Um, so what they decided to do was to say that it was not, quote-unquote, hostilities. Um and therefore not subject to the War Powers Resolution. Now, this is despite the fact that we are dropping a lot of bombs on Libya. I mean, it, uh, I think it's more air power than, you know, more more bombs than were used in all of World War One or something like that. I mean, it was really like an extensive, extensive campaign. This was not small beans. And the U.S. was very involved in all the air campaign. And the idea was, Nonetheless, it was not hostilities because we didn't have boots on the ground. We didn't have American forces at risk. And there was a whole list of uh, particular justifications that were given that were sort of meant to try and suggest that this was kind of a, a distinctive um, challenge that that made this not hostilities. But what that did is it basically had the effect of more or less deep sixing the War Powers Resolution, which which was already kind of on the rocks. But it meant that this 60-day, that the president and his team could interpret something like the Libya intervention as not hostilities and therefore not subject to the limits in the War Powers Resolution, just suggested that that was a total paper tiger, that it wasn't going to actually provide any kind of constraint, and, um, and that the War Powers Resolution was effectively dead because the president could kind of endlessly reinterpret the term hostilities, including in ways that most people thought were utterly implausible um, to sort of do an end run around the war power resolution and then to go back to the courts 
if you were to challenge that in courts, the courts would say, well, political question or standing or for various reasons, we can't actually reach the merits of this. So even though almost everyone agreed that this was an incredibly um, tenuous and really pretty indefensible interpretation of the War Powers Resolution, there wasn't really any place Congress could go. And then it's put back in the situation of the only way to stop it then is to have a two-thirds majority in both houses, which is impossible. So yeah, it just illustrates the problems that we're constantly running into in this space. Because of the outsized role that the United States plays in the international system, its abuses of the rule of law with respect to the use of force affects the whole system in a way and, and provides avenues for other states to further undermine it. Um, you have a quote in this chapter, uh, quote, there is little doubt that the UN Charter's narrow exception for the use of force has come under intense pressure, much of it resulting from the U.S. executive branch's increasingly aggressive interpretations of the exception. As its interpretation of the exception expands, other states follow. Can you say more about that and maybe illustrate with some examples? Yeah, I mean, this is I think what I I what I'm trying to do here is show that this is not costless. You know, so so the US I think has this tendency to think we've got this particular problem in front of us. Let's find a way to kind of interpret our way around this problem. Um by increasingly often increasingly expansive interpretations of of self-defense. And what I think it's important to recognize is that whenever the U.S. does that, you know, the U.S. has this real authority within the international system. Like states listen to us. They take our views about international law very seriously. And so when the U.S. has these interpretations of international law, it, it changes the meaning of international law. It changes what states consider to be acceptable interpretations of not only what the U.S. can do, but what they can do. Um, so one example um, is we talked earlier about the unable and willing doctrine. Um, the U.S. has repeatedly used the unable and unwilling doctrine to justify use of military force against non-state actor groups in states where the states are either unable or unwilling to address the threat from those non-state actor groups. And it uses that phrasing over and over again. That has now come to be more accepted, I think it's still somewhat controversial, and that you know, I I still think there's only there's only a couple of handfuls of states that sort of explicitly have adopted this, but they have explicitly adopted it following the U.S. government um, and its interpretation, and um, and we're seeing states act on it. So you know, ironically, we that perhaps the most ironic situation is a situation in northern Syria where. The U.S. has been supporting um, Syrian defensive forces, um, and the justification for use of for supporting the SDF, uh, providing their arms and you know support and intelligence and all kinds of other things, and sometimes like joint operations with the Syrian defensive forces in northern um, in northern Syria. Part of the justification for that has been it's in support of our self-defense mission against ISIS. And so they are basically our boots on the ground um, in northern Syria. We're supporting them in their efforts because they are kind of basically our best way of, of attacking ISIS in, in northern Syria. The irony is that then Turkey sees SDF forces as aligned with um, with the PKK and 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 um, and groups that they view as terrorists. 
Um, and so they are actually attacking some of those. They have at times done attacks in northern Syria against some of the very forces the U.S. is supporting. Um, and their justification is self-defense of Turkey against these non-state actor groups that are located in northern Syria. And so we're ironically potentially in a hot war. You know, we're literally you know, on opposite sides of a hot fight with our NATO allies for whom we have an, uh, an, an obligation to, to engage in self-defense of. So it puts us in this like incredibly complicated um, situation and it and they're basically they're parroting us and the justification for, for this. They're parroting us and saying, look, this is an state actor group that Syria is unable or unwilling to address the threat. They're posing a threat in Turkey, and therefore we can engage in these strikes against these against these forces over the border without having to get Syria's permission to do so. So we're seeing we're seeing this this same language. You also saw, I mean, I think somewhat more um, uh, problematically, you saw uh, Putin using some of our language when he invaded Ukraine on the eve of that. Um, invasion. He gave this very long-winded speech of you know every grievance that he has, um, but one of the justifications he provided was that um, he was acting in the self-defense of Russian nationals um, in Ukraine, who he said were being subject to persecution, even genocide, by Ukraine, and that um, they had a right to engage in collective self-defense of. Uh, these Russian nationals, which is another phrase the U.S. keeps using, this idea of collective self-defense is another, like unable and willing, this idea of collective self-defense is another phrasing that the, that the U.S. has been using, not only on behalf of state actors, where it's more traditionally used, but the U.S. has actually started using this idea of collective self-defense of non-state actors, which um, is much uh, more tenuous under international law so far, you haven't seen much uptake of this idea, but the U.S. has articulated again and again, again uh, in uh, in response to for supporting the SDF fighters and defending them against attack um, by their own government, Syria, um, on their own soil, on Syria's own soil. We're using this justification of collective self-defense, and so you see this parroted by Putin when he's using force. In Ukraine, um, in quote unquote, the collective self-defense of these of these Russian nationals and these separatist groups um, in Ukraine. So we say these things, and then others pick them up and they start using them, and they try to use them to justify their own behavior. Right, and that irony you identified is embedded within the broader irony that much of what the United States does in the world militarily is justified by reference to maintaining international order. And yet our actions have been actually undermining it. Um, yes, exactly. This is, I want to take a slight step away from your kind of legal analysis um, because I'm curious about how oddly marginalized your view is on this in the kind of foreign policy, national security community. Um, not all academics do this, but you're one that has a foot in both worlds. Um, and this community is constantly producing reams of policy analysis and advice, and as a whole, it seems to just accept 
the legitimacy and legality of, of these interventions and focus on tactical analysis or the geopolitics of it all. Um, but it just seems like very few people actually look at the interventions themselves and say, oh, these are essentially lawless. Why? Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> I welcome more people over to my side. Um, you know, I think um, I think there are a number of reasons. Um, one reason is that if you're looking at a particular moment, it makes sense in light of what has come before it. You know, so so each individual moment, each individual justification makes sense given the kind of the justification before that and the justification before that and the justification before that. It's only when you step back and you look at like, wait a minute, how far have we come in the last 20 years? Like the arguments we're making now are arguments that John Yu was being pilloried for 20 years ago and rightly pilloried for. And yet, like, if you look at the Office of Legal Counsel opinions these days, they look a lot very similar. And in fact, interestingly, his OLC opinions on use of force have not been withdrawn, um, unlike his his torture opinions, which were withdrawn. Um, and so I think part of it is just like when you're in the middle of it, it's maybe a little bit hard to see how much of a ton of transformation there has been. And so what I was trying to do in this paper is kind of step back and say, look at each of these moments. Like we have we're we're kind of constantly pushing the envelope. And then once we push the envelope, we push it again. And then we push it again and we push it again. And this latest one of collective self-defense of non-state actor groups is like the latest kind of out of the box idea that, you know, I fear, you know, in a few years, everybody else is going to start parroting it as well, because that's that seems to be what happens with our with our theories. And at a certain point, you get to the point where you've undermined the idea that there's any prohibition on the use of force. Because if you can kind of make up a self-defense justification for any use of force that you might have, it, it undermines that fundamental principle. I think it's also the case that, um, you know, I, 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 I gained confidence in this view after having worked in the Department of Defense. Um, I think when you see the sausage being made you realize um, there isn't some like grand plan. They don't know that much more than we do. You know, like we we know pretty much what they know. You know, there isn't something, there isn't, I think there's a hesitancy from the outside to be critical because there's always a sense like maybe there's something more going on here that I don't really understand. And, you know, I don't want to be the ones who being who's being critical of this if it's really truly essential to U.S. national security. But I've had TSSCI clearance, you know, and I've seen this and I feel confident in the arguments that I'm making in a way that I might not have if I hadn't um, had that view. Not that anything that I'm saying is, is class, you know, I'm obviously not divulging anything that I learned that's classified, but it just increases my understanding of how these legal decisions are made. Um, and, you know, I wrote this whole article, long article, 100 page article called National Security Lawyering. That's all about how the process of lawyering within the administration happens and how these kinds of creeping the pressure to kind of come up justifications to support what the what the policy folks want to do. And that there's just nothing there's no there's no breaker in the system, you know, and, and being in the middle of that and having seen that. I think that helps me better understand the kind of pressures the executive branch lawyers are under and the fact that this this is kind of an inevitable process. 
that if we don't point it out, we don't see it, it's going to continue to the point where the whole international order kind of collapses in on itself. And I think the other reason that I care so much about this is is I really do see the prohibition on force as as a kind of fundamental underlying principle of the modern international legal order. So I wrote this book, The Internationalists, which traced the kind of long history going back to the you know, 1600s of kind of what is our international legal order? Where did it come from? How did it change? And the process of writing that book really became convinced that the thing that's holding our world together, you know, the fundamental underlying principle is this prohibition on force. And the more we erode it, the more we kind of come up with this justification or that justification, the more we are chipping away at that. And the more we chip away at that, the more we put this unprecedented peace that we've been in. It's funny to say that I'm sure in the midst of, you know, the war in Ukraine, in the midst of the violence that's happening in the Middle East right now and in Israel. But it is nonetheless one of the most peaceful times um, in the world. And to put that at risk is is is, you know, not something to be done lightly because we're headed in a direction of much greater violence and chaos and you know, the war in Ukraine is an example of that. I think what's happening in Israel is an example of that. And the erosion of these norms, um, I think, leads in the direction of greater and greater violence around the world. Uh, that segues nicely into my last question. I want to close out by asking a kind of theoretical question. I'll save the hardest for last. Um, there's been a lot of recent work, I think, on the decline of conquest and war and you mentioned your 2017 book with Scott Shapiro, The Internationalists. You mentioned some of that data um, in the book. Some scholars quibble with the data and say this isn't really a trend that we can put much stock in. But lots of scholars just have different opinions on the causal forces at play. And, and your book partly tells the story of the development of international law and how that's the crucial factor here. Others say there are emergent norms happening that are kind of distinct from law itself. Um, others say nuclear weapons are really crucial. Once you have mutually assured destruction among the great powers, it really tamps down on interstate conflict. Um, some say the economy develops such that states just started to see it more in their interest to trade and get rich and, and avoid getting in costly wars. Uh, it's the kind of thing that broadly, if you look at it, the scholarship, it, it seems like an overdetermined thing. There were lots of uh, probably interconnected trends pushing the system in this way. But I kind of want your story uh, uh, out of all this. How do you explain this decline in war and conquest? And then maybe at the very end, you can tell us about whether this is really eroding to the point where we might see a trend in the opposite direction. Yeah, great. I mean, that's the that's the million dollar question, right? Um, I. I point your listeners to uh, this uh, short piece that I did with Scott um, in response to a critique from Steve Wall. Um, uh, it's posted on my SSRN page. I, I think we called it What Realists Don't Understand About Law. Um, it's short. You know, it's five pages long. Um, and it tries to sort of answer some of these critiques. The basic idea that we we put forward there, and I think the idea that underlies the book and underlies my own thinking, is that you don't have to know that law is shaping your behavior for law to shape your behavior. Um, law shapes that that um, your expectations about not only what you're supposed to do, but what other states are going to do in response to what you do. 
And so you may think you're just acting in your self-defense and you may be acting just in your self-defense, but you may not fully understand the way in which what what is what is what it, your senses of what your own self-interest is is shaped by the legal order itself. Right. So for instance, just to take an example, um uh we would these days, I think, not seriously contemplate the idea of going in and conquering much of Mexico um, because, you know, they've done, you know, that they're not able to control the the drug trade or because there's, you know, too much migration coming into the U.S. through the through our joint border or that they owe us money. But of course, you know, and if we did that, the whole world would revile us and you know, would respond that what we were doing was so radically inconsistent with the international order. And, and you know, there would be every possible kind of sanction that states could bring against us would be would be brought against us. But, you know, historically, of course, we did that. You know, we, we, we invaded Mexico and we took, you know, what is now much of the um, uh, Western, South, Southwestern and Western parts of the United States from Mexico in response to the failure to pay debts that Mexico had. And that was just how things were done back then. That was perfectly legal and legitimate. They failed to pay debts, uh, might made right, that was perfectly legal. And uh, and no one blinked an eye at it because there was nothing inappropriate about what we were doing at the time. So legal norms can change. And when legal norms change, they change how states, what the states think are as available to themselves as appropriate legal action and how other states will respond to those actions. Um, you know, and I think that's true of all the different things that we're talking about here. I mean, nuclear weapons obviously is one of the things we often hear, you know, what about nuclear weapons? Those those are really the cause of the peace. But you have to remember the US had nuclear weapons to itself for a while. And if it was only nuclear weapons that was stopping conquest, like why didn't the US take over the entire world? Or at least like take some good chunks of it, <laughs> you know? like. Well, because we had just fought a war on the fundamental principle of prohibition of conquest, the prohibition of, of uh, seizure of territory. And we actually were engaged in a process of norm construction to reinforce that principle by creating a United Nations that put that norm at its core. And people actually believed it. Um, you know, and and we understood that that to be a fundamental principle of the international order. So the idea of using uh, nuclear weapons to sort of take over lots of territory and impose our will on everyone was not really something that was on the table. Um, so anyway, I think I think a lot of these things you can explain by understanding that law. You don't have to know that law is guiding your behavior for law to guide your behavior, um, and it creates incentives and structures within which we all operate. and And I think that's true of the international legal order, um, and, and that's you know the way to understand how these big picture normative shifts um, affect what states are doing over time, even if they may not fully understand that that's, that's how they're being shaped. Ona Hathaway, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.